You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is John S. Torday, a PhD. He's a professor of pediatrics and OBGYN at uh, UCLA. Uh, he works in the Division of Neonatology. He's also a director of the Gunther Laboratory for Cell Molecular Biology. He's been involved um, with evolutionary biology uh, for 50 plus years. He's got a lot to say. Uh, I've corresponded with him a bit offline, asked him a bunch of questions. Uh, and he has so much more to offer. I think you'll see through this interview, uh, the amount of his knowledge is uh, is pretty expansive. So listen in and uh, enjoy this podcast. So John, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Well, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've spoken a lot offline, and I know that you've been working uh, as a scientist for 50 plus years, which is amazing. That's a long time. What what has it felt like throughout the years in terms of your base of knowledge, you know, as you've gone along? Are there any major themes or changes that you've experienced as you've done science over so many years? Well, I think, um, I guess I would first say that the observation, scientific observation that catalyzed my career was yet another serendipitous observation that uh, a simple molecule of the cortisol uh, hormone could um, uh, significantly accelerate um, fetal development, which was a huge breakthrough. It was the beginning of the whole discipline of neonatology or newborn medicine. Um, and so I was sort of sucked into that because uh, as a developmental cell physiologist, I mean, it was so profound that it had to be addressed. But in terms of technology, I mean, there's been a huge change in um, biomedical research from descriptive biochemistry at the time I entered the field back in the late 60s to the transition to molecular biology and um, and the whole concept of genomics, uh, proteomics, all the omics. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's been a sea change, um, not so much in what we uh, know, but the way we go about um, interrogating um, the experimental models that we use. So what do you believe um, scientists are experiencing? Do you believe that they're making steady progress and that the reductionist way of looking at, you know, living organisms or let's say the body is working? Or do you think that, uh, you know, we're running up against complexities that are slowing progress? I don't think we've... So I, I segued into evolutionary biology about 20 years ago, um, uh, largely because I finally sort of figured out how to explain um, ca causation and uh, the origins of life based upon uh, the mechanisms of cell signaling and cell, cell communication that we had been studying for many decades. And so because of my transition to understanding the ontology and the epistemology of life, I don't think we've moved any further from uh, Linnaeus doing binomial nomenclature than he, he, where he was at the time. We continued to describe biology instead of being, biology being a hard science, which is predictive like chemistry and physics, because we have no central theory of biology. Uh, I've proffered one. I published a paper with that title, uh, but um, no one's sort of stepping up to, you know, to, to um, raise me up on their shoulders because I'm a bit ahead of the curve as I usually am. And so people don't really understand what I'm talking about by and large with some rare exceptions. Um, so yeah, so my answer to your question is no, we haven't made, uh, we've made very little progress in terms of understanding the mechanisms of biology. We still describe the mechanisms as if to say, you know, understanding, you know, internal combustion. Yeah, we can describe the parts of an inter internal combustion engine, but we don't know the in internal workings of that engine. We don't delve into the 
those processes. Um, Etienne Roux is a well-known physiologist in France. He published a paper back in 2014 in which he posited, independently of anything I've said to you, that by fo focusing on functions in biology, it's teleologic, tautologic. It's not all about, it's not about function. We have to understand the origins of life and how that arc has evolved to give us what we, what we think of as complexity, when in reality, life is not complex. Life is actually very simple. We began as unicellular organisms about uh, three and a half billion years ago. Um, I'm sorry, four, more like four billion years ago, life was dominated by unicellular organisms for three and a half billion years. Um, and in reality, I don't think we've ever left the unicellular state. The zygote actually is the primary level of selection. And I wrote a paper, the title of which was The Phenotype as Agent, explaining that phenotype isn't just describing height, weight, uh, intelligence, all those other characteristics uh, that we have phenotypically. But in reality, phenotype is actually an agent for the collection of epigenetic marks. So my laboratory is funded by the National Institutes of Health to study the epigenetics of asthma, for example. And so we know now that the asthmatic phenotype uh, is um, in terms of an environmental as opposed to a genetic predisposition to asthma that both both exist. Uh, the environmental uh, predisposition to asthma is actually due to, at least the model we use is one of paternal and maternal smoking, mother, mother and father smoked, because there's such a rich uh, epidemiologic um, database. Um, and so through that, through that study, we've come to the realization that, so we've been able to demonstrate using nicotine as a proxy for smoke because smoke is a nest it's 3,000 compounds but so experimentally we use nicotine as a proxy for smoke and we've shown that you can create the asthmatic phenotype in a rat for at least four generations um, and the way that happens is that the, uh, nic the nicotine affects the genetic readout of the egg and sperm and then when you have um, uh, during reproduction um, those uh, what are referred to as epigenetic marks are, in, are uh, assimilated by the developing embryo and fetus, and the offspring then uh, express the asthmatic phenotype. So we've done all of the molecular biology and the genetics, as well as doing you know, functional measurements of, of the asthma phenotype. Again, it's rats. But it's totally consistent with what happens in humans. It's probably yeah. exactly the same. so. Why um, an epigenetics is about like the black hole. The epigenetics is the black matter of biology. Only about three to five percent of human uh, genetic uh, diseases, genetic diseases, diseases are uh, what are referred to as Mendelian, Mendel's you know peas kind mm. of thing. Um, the other ninety-seven five to seven ninety-seven percent of human epi uh, genetic disease, we haven't a clue as to how, how it works. My sense is that it's and there's more and more evidence. In, in terms of epigenetics, um, is there anyone out there that's trying to catalog which epigenetic modifi modifications are heritable and which ones are not? Um, I would say that all of them are because in order to make it through the pipeline. So so it had been thought that epigenetics, that, that the, the so-called epigenetic marks, that's the way it's expressed. So the information directly obtained from the environment. Um, was wiped clean during the process of reduction division or meiosis. Turns out that's not. So during meiosis, there's some fundamental mechanism which we we are funded actually to determine through the mo the asthma model that we study. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is that um, the mar some marks are retained, whereas others are lost. And so and, and beyond that, during embryogenesis, if if whatever that epigenetic mark is that's retained is consistent with the uh, biology of, of the developing uh, conceptus, it will be retained and, and will be expressed in the offspring. That's why I say that epi epigenetic inheritance is passed inter, uh, not only in, inter but transgenerationally, so more than more than one generation, um, as we've shown with the asthma phenotype. As far as whether someone is looking at that, yeah, it's referred to as the epigenome, and uh, it can be um, described for any given uh, for any given genome, human or animal um, that that you're uh, that you're studying. So yes, that that's an ongoing um, process. Yeah, because the reason I ask is, you know, if you knew how to affect your uh, your gene expression yourself, you could, I guess, change your life in ways you wanted to change it, you know, for your benefit. But you know, when you think about having children, there's this desire and this fear of you know genetically engineered babies. But how about epigenetically influenced babies? You know, in the right way. What could you do as a as a parent to be that would uh, you know create a child that would be 
have favorable characteristics like you wanted. That so the 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 sixty fourth dollar question there is it's it's not going to be any exposure that's going to be epigenetically heritable. It's it's contingent upon the history of the organism. So common sense would dictate, and and it seems to be holding up that. Uh, it's a function of, um, you know, whether you live in water or on land, whether you live, you know, uh, in, in specific environments, um, that as to whether those epigenetic marks are going to um, be um, assimilated by the organism or not. Um, so we don't actually know um, which ones, which epigenetic marks um, meet those criteria, but that will be, you know, that will come about as as more and more work is done on the on the subject. So, so yes, I think that we we can probably influence um, the outcome of uh, human pregnancy through diet and other um, aspects of um, of the process. But we don't really know, other than you know the usual you know dictum of you know um, nutrition and you know and not exposing yourself to toxins or even alcohol or cigarette smoke, for example. But we don't really know in a systematic way um, how how to actually practice epigenetic uh, the epigenetics of inheritance yet. But I I mean I've spent my career <laughs> trying to understand that because it only makes sense that one of the most labile or plastic sta- stages of, of um, biology is during during development um, in utero. And, you know, whatever the mother is ingesting um, is being experienced uh, largely by, by the fetus because it's pa- passing through the placenta. So I, I have strongly thought that whatever we could learn in that regard should be taught to women who are um, undergoing gestation, because it's an, it's probably the, the most important um, stage in human biology. Hmm. Okay, um, you know, I guess the, the the dogma you could say is that you know the the DNA uh, determines everything. You know, certain sequences of DNA or genes, and that seems to be just the whole underpinning of a lot of effort from a lot of scientists. Um, how does epigenetics fit in? Do you, do you see it being resisted, being welcomed? I mean, because it seems like it would cause a paradigm change in what we're doing. You know, for instance, there's there's companies that are sequencing millions of people's genes, you know, to find answers. But I don't hear them sequencing their epigenetic marks. I don't. I haven't heard of anyone doing that. So how do you think this is um, all going to play out? Yeah. So um, g- uh, genes don't talk to genes. <laughs> Cells talk to cells, so cell communication is the fundament of um, normal embryonic development. We stumbled onto that about uh, back in the late 70s. We were trying to, we were doing the cell culture work to understand this effect of the hormone cortisol on specifically on lung development because that is the late rate limiting step in the transition from intrauterine life to the delivery room for human and well for all mammals. Um, and we had discovered, much to our surprise, that we, we expected the hormone to affect uh, the epithelial lining cells of the alveoli, which make a soapy material called surfactant. So the Kennedy baby died in 1962. J- uh, Jack Kennedy's son, uh, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, died of uh, what was called Highland Membrane Disease in 1962. Um, that disease no longer exists. It's now called respiratory distress syndrome because it's not Highland Membrane Disease was a post-mortem um, uh, terminology. The baby was dead. Those babies all live now, um, thanks to the discovery of this surfactant. Uh, and not so much that where the, surf, the surfactant was known to exist, but how it related to this Highland membrane disease was the great break was one of the great breakthroughs of 20th century medicine. Um, and and it largely forms the the focus of the discipline of neonatology and high risk perinatology. So. Um, at any rate, uh, I'm getting off point here. So what we discovered was that the surfactant, which is synthesized in the epithelial cells that line the alveoli, we thought that was the target for the hormone, but it isn't. It's the underlying connective tissue or the lung fibroblast, which actually produce a low molecular weight protein, which then is secreted and stimulates the surfactant in the epithelial uh, type 2 cells. So that was discovered by a very talented uh, clinician scientist whom I actually trained when I was at McGill as a graduate. And he published that paper in 1979 in Science. About 40 years later, I discovered that it actually was a a known or a a, a hormone that was discovered later. It's called leptin, um, which is actually what 
uh, and Barry Smith, who had discovered this phenomenon, called it fibroblast and the monocyte factor descriptor. It's actually leptin. I've published several papers on that subject. At any rate, the point I'm trying to make okay. is that that was a big breakthrough because up until that point, nothing had been learned about pattern formation in embryology um, since the discovery by Spemann of what he called organizer in Germany back in the late 19th century. Uh, in that hundred and whatever, almost 200 year stretch, we really didn't know what what controlled embryogenesis. But then with the discovery of this paracrine, so-called paracrinism, how cells communicate with one another through soluble growth factors, and Stan Cohen won the Nobel Prize for discovering epidermal growth factor, for example. Um, now, at that point, we started to roll out this idea of the paracrine regulation of cellular growth and differentiation, which essentially is um, the underpinning of evolution as well, as well in the way that I've um, established that evolution occurs. So the uh, alteration of um, homeostatic equilibrium between the cells um, actually is what gives rise to novel structure and function during evolution. So it's a totally different way yeah, of thinking I have a, about evolution. Yeah, I have a question about that. So, yeah, can you say more about that mechanism? Like, first of all, in the time that we've been looking for, let's say, new species, let's say the last 150 years or 100 years, have we seen them appear? Have we seen dramatic changes in organisms that would constitute a new species? And if not, why? And how do you think new species arise? Well, so, you know, conventionally, we see these, you know, cladograms uh, in which you show the vertebrate evolution from fish to man. And then, you know, in between is amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and birds. Um, that's the description of how evolution has transpired over the last few hundred million years. Um, but no one's ever uh, determined what the mechanism is for transitioning from a fish to a human. Um, I, in the first paper I wrote, um, I had actually been able to demonstrate how uh, the swim bladder, the organ that um, allows for a fish to adapt to, for, to buoyancy, the swim bladder evolves into the lung. And it had been thought that the, that the gill was the, was the homologue, uh, the origin of, of the human or of the mammalian lung, uh, it turns out that's an analogy, not homology. Homology means it came from the same source. So uh, I was able to, um, t what I did was I, I at, the, at the, a certain point in my own understanding of the development of the lung, um, I was able to put the whole process together, at least for the alveoli, the structures that mediate the gas exchange of, of oxygen and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to the circulation of the organism. And I overlaid that on phylogeny, the, the changes in the, um, in the um, vertebrate, uh, vertebrates from fish to man. I overlaid that on that process because we had enough data for what happens between a swim bladder and a lung in the intermediate steps. And sure enough, you could see that those uh, cellular mechanisms that are mediated by soluble growth factors explain how the alveolus transitioned from the swim bladder in which there's this large chamber that fills and empties um, with gas, and that allows, like a submarine, allows the fish to adapt to bu for buoyancy. In frogs, for example, they have what are called fabioli, which are very large chambers as well. But as the alveolus has evolved um, to reptiles, um, mammals, and birds, those alveoli have gotten smaller and smaller in order to increase the surface area to volume ratio uh, for exchange of gases with the uh, microcirculation of the uh, of the lung in the case of uh, you know um, mammals for example um, that but transpired through cellular interactions so so these the cells of the um, alveolar lining are in, were uh, are are remodeling that structure literally in order to adapt to um, for gas exchange um, on land I don't know if that made sense, but that's essentially well, how the, 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 the process works. Why would, why would this happen? Like, you know, why? Why? why yeah, why would this happen? You know, a fish is swimming around. What, what's the, the motivation to go onto land? And, and do you have intermediate forms where a fish is now an amphibian and it hangs out on land sometimes and other times not? It's just, you know, even if you understand the mechanism, I don't know why this would happen. It's strange. Okay, so Romer, Alfred Romer, Romer, the University of Chicago, had postulated, had hypothesized that there was, because there was an accumulation of carbon dioxide in the, in the uh, nascent atmosphere of the Earth, uh, about uh, 
a billion years ago, give or take, um, that that caused a greenhouse, which caused drying up of the. So the, the Earth was covered with, with water initially, um, and then uh, the, the, there was a drying up of those oceans, and there were specific bony fish. So there are two types of bony fish. There are Physostomus and Physostigmus bony fish, fish that have a bony skeleton. So Physostigmus fish uh, have a swim bladder that extracts um, gases directly from the circulation. We didn't evolve from, uh, we evolved from what are called physostomus fish. Those are the ones where, that actually have a, uh, what it's called a pneumatic duct or a tube that goes from the esophagus to the swim bladder. It's the homolog of the trachea. And so that, that organ, and so the, the, the question you're asking is, well, why, why would the fish bother to transition from water to land? Well, it had to because the, the oceans were drying up. And there was opportunity there, or they self-selected, uh, if, uh, and there are, you know, like stickleback fish do that, you know, modern stickleback. They live both on land and in water, depending upon the environmental condition. And so for years, I pondered why, you know, what was it that was driving this process? And then it, I realized, I remembered that, so under stress, so so the adaptation to land is highly, is extremely stressful, not uh, not only because of the increase in gravitational force on the organism because, you know, you're buoyant in water and on land you have a greater uh, effect of gravity on the organism. Um, but, um, and so, so that physiologic uh, actually causes an increase in blood pressure in an organism that's transitioning, a fish, for example. Um, and that increase in blood pressure causes uh, shear, shear stress on the microvasculature of um, various vascular beds, the lung, the kidney, the liver, the brain, whatever. And that shear stress generates what are called radical oxygen species. So the oxygen is highly interactive and is known to cause gene mutations and more importantly, gene duplication. So there are three genes that are known to have duplicated during the transition from water to land. It's well documented. And all three of those genes are necessary for adaptation to land. So what I'm saying to you is we already know that there are specific mechanisms that evolved in that transition, that adaptation to land, that so, and all three of those genes, uh, the parathyroid hormone-related protein gene, which I was funded to study for 30 years by the NIH, the glucocorticoid receptor and the beta-adrenergic receptor, all three of them, if you uh, delete them from a developing mouse, you get phenotypes that are consistent with um, well, first of all, the animal can't survive, and furthermore, the uh, the um, structures that are that are for so the skeleton, for example, does not calcify. The um, lungs don't form alveoli, which was why I got funded because that clearly was important. And there are other um, the skin doesn't form normally, and, and there are a number of other phenotypic expressions uh, of the organism that are necessary for land adaptation, which have been shown not to occur if you delete uh, if you delete those genes. And in, for, in fact, there are pathologic conditions that are consistent with that. And sometimes it's, these genes have been, you know, they're, they're referred to as knock-ins, where you actually replace the gene and you see that the reverse is true. So everything I've said is based upon experiment, experimental evidence. I don't make stuff up. I don't, I don't, it's not inductive reasoning. This is deductive reasoning based um, entirely upon experimental that, That's great. So what, in the example of a fish coming onto land, so its behavior would cause a buildup of epigenetic marks, and at some point, is there a, uh, a step function in, its, in the organism itself where it now doesn't go into the water at all? Is, it, is there a point at which the underlying you know, DNA itself rearranges? So we know that there are, it, it is a reversible process because, for example, uh, dogs evolved from, uh, I'm sorry, seals evolved from dogs. Um, whales evolved from elephants. And this is not, you know, Kipling. This is not just those stories. It's well documented. So under extreme conditions like glaciation periods, um, the, certain mammals have gone back to water. But they're, they're anecdotal. By and large, suggesting it's a one-way trip. You adapt to land and you acquire epigenetic marks, which then change your evolutionary trajectory, if you will. But so, for example, uh, Joe Thornton has shown that um, the mineralocorticoid uh, hormone receptor, which regulates blood pressure, um, was modified through uh, the acquisition of three peptides in the what's called the binding site of that hormone uh, receptor, the the active site of that uh, molecule, um, and be, and that 
became what's the glucocorticoid receptor that regulates uh, carbohydrate metabolism. Um, cortisol is a glucocorticoid, for example. Um, but so as a as a good card carrying uh, evolutionist, Thornton never really addressed why that might have happened. He just documented that it did happen based upon molecular genetics. I think it makes sense, and I've gone on record to say, well, that when you adapt to land, as I said, gravi gravitational forces are increased, and if you're make making only these mineralocorticoids that further increase your blood pressure, there must be some way to offset that. It's called epistasis, and and the sh the uh, stress on the system, pro uh, on the vasculature, probably uh, caused the um, hypothetically caused that uh, change in the receptor site of the mineralocorticoid to form the glucocorticoid receptor, which would have had a dual effect. It would have offset the uh, would have decreased the amount of mineralocorticoid corticoid production, and in turn, the glucocorticoids, which are mediated by that receptor, they stimulate the beta-adrenergic receptors, which are necessary for um, the partitioning of the control of blood pressure between the systemic blood pressure and the lung. So the lung has an independent way of regulating its blood pressure from the systemic blood pressure, and that occurred in that water-to-land transition. And that was absolutely uh, existential for adaptation uh, for uh, adaptation to air breathing. So what I'm saying is that at the cellular molecular level, there are um, mechanisms that would explain these very fundamental changes that have occurred, particularly in that water-to-land transition, which basically put um, mammals on the map, if you will. And, um, and so in terms of stepwise change, I've suggested that uh, the reason that uh, so only birds and, and mammals are warm-blooded, all other organisms are cold-blooded. Uh, their body temperature is that of the ambi ambient temperature of the environment they live in. We and birds, uh, mammals and birds, have a way of regulating our own body has fostered huge genetic uh, activity because you know albatrosses can transit the uh, the, po the polar ice caps uh, we we humans have adapted to all the environments of the of the earth short of maybe the arctic and the antarctic um and we've uh, transited and transitioned that into space for that matter so if you think of yeah, the just, epigenetics of that it's um so what i've yeah, i just i just had that, a thought i just had a thought i don't know if this makes sense since okay. epigenetics is the dark matter you know, and it makes up 97% of all the necessary change. Maybe there, it doesn't. Maybe, maybe that's why the underlying DNA of so many organisms is so similar because it doesn't need to change. I don't know. And maybe the epigenetic changes are enough to uh, create many different forms and functions of creature. Yes, absolutely. So Sean Carroll is a preeminent evolutionist, and Carroll's big thing is what's called cis-regulation. So how it is that genes uh, at, the at the genetic level, there are, there's um, interaction between the genes, if you will, in terms of their co-regulation. But that's describing a phenomenon. What's at the other end of the, you know, the process? What's happening at the surface of the cell? That's where the, the changes in the cellular environment dictate those cis-regulatory changes. So what I'm saying to you is that we've become overly reductionist. I, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, once you, once you transit the cell membrane, you're not talking about biology anymore. You're talking about molecular chemistry. Um, it's a different, it's, it's a description and not a mechanism that, that explains biologic prop, mechanistic properties. So, uh, so what I've suggested is that um, the warm-bloodedness, it actually, um, uh, Al Bennett had, uh, a well-known evolutionist had said that uh, warm-bloodedness was, was a product of um, muscle activity. So muscle, you increase muscle activity, you know, temper, you know, body temperature, and that was the origins uh, of um, endothermy or, or warm-bloodedness. That's, there's no connection between the muscle and any other uh, process in the, in the organism that would um, account for an environmental interaction that, that would give rise to endothermy. So what I've suggested is that um, there were, if, you, if you accept that idea of the, the lung evolving in a stepwise fashion from the swim bladder through cellular interactions, there would have been phases at which the organism could no longer keep up with the metabolic drive for adaptation to land, which is thought to, is considered to be the major driver of evolution, metabolism. And so the organism would become hypoxic. It wouldn't have enough oxygen to maintain itself. Oxygen is the most potent physiologic agonist that we know of. It stimulates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis to produce adrenaline. And the adrenaline then stimulates 
the lung, the uh, inefficient lung, to secrete more of this lung surfactant. Uh, we, we published that paper in 1978 when I was at Harvard. And um, that allows for the, alve the existing alveoli to distend more than they would otherwise because the surfactant decreases surface tension and allows that to happen. So in a sort of stopgap me uh, measure, the, the lung is now sufficient to maintain the organism. And then because the stretching of the alveoli stimulates this parathyroid hormone-related protein that I had mentioned earlier that duplicates during the water-to-land transition, PTHRP is necessary for the formation of more new, uh, new alveoli. So over the long haul, you get more alveoli, and so the, organism, the lung of the organism evolves. But in the process, um, the adrenaline that's produced by the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis also causes the fat, the fat cells within the body um, to release free fatty acids, which are a very uh, um, efficient way of, of increasing metabolism. Um, they increase body heat. And so a, a collateral effect of that stress effect on lung evolution was the generation of, uh, of uh, metabolic heat uh, through that coordinated mechanism and then ultimately that adaptive re reaction, existential reaction, was, uh, over, uh, was um, overtaken by or was replaced by a genetic change uh, in, a, in that um, oxytocin, a hormone that's produced by the hypothalamus, is now known to be genetic determinant of endothermy, uh, warm-bloodedness. And that's a, that's a classic, that's how evolution works. First, there's an adaptive response, and then ultimately there's a selection for a genetic, uh, a constitutive uh, regulatory mechanism that, that then phases in over the course of evolution. Yeah, why would, um, I mean, supposedly uh, different species can't breed. So why would that occur if a, if a, if a creature is transitioning, hmm. you know, over mm -hmm. X number of generations, why all of a sudden would it be where, hmm. you know, that creature can't breed with uh, what came before it? What do you think is happening there? Right, which is a functional definition of a, what a species. If, if they can't interbreed, then they're different species, right? And that's a very hot question right. in biology. We don't exactly know what speciation really constitutes. We just published a paper on on the subject, but, you know, it comes from our own. Bill Miller and I published together. He's a retired radio. At any rate, so one one reason, uh, one answer to that, I mean, because Wiseman had said that there, that that the germ cells, the reproductive organs, were p partitioned from. There's a firewall between the reproductive organs and the somatic or non-reproductive organs. That turns out not to be true. I just said to you 20 minutes ago that epigenetic marks end up in the in the germ cells, and that's how epigenetics works. But but you know they had Weissman's in in Weissman's time they had rejected Lamarckian epigenetic inheritance. So but but that so that does, turns out not to be correct. Um, we're actually publishing a book with a guy named Jean Gieux, who's an anthropologist um, in France. And Gieux has shown, for example, that in ammonites, which are these uh, uh, shellfish, he has a whole a large collection of these ammonites, and he's been able to demonstrate that under uh, environmental stress, those ammonite shells change their phenotypic configuration. Uh, so basically what he's shown, he's demonstrated that reverse evolution can occur. Um, that's antithetical to Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution maintains that um, it's all about random mutation and it's never reversed. It's always going in, in a forward direction, never in a reverse direction. I'm convinced that that's not true. Um, my own uh, work on chronic disease as reverse evolution demonstrates that, for example. So if you have chronic disease, like chronic lung disease, which I know well because I'm a lung biologist, what you see is that over time with, in chronic lung disease, you get these, um, I had explained that the alveoli become smaller and smaller in order to be, become more and more efficient for gas exchange. In chronic diseases like COPD um, and, and emphysema, the partitioning of those alveoli is lost. And so the alveoli get larger and larger and less and less efficient for gas exchange. That's what chronic lung disease is. That's what people are on, you know, oxygen and taking, you know, and, and um, you know, and having to use inhale inhalers in order to use as best they can what lung tissue they have left. But the point I'm getting at is that the lung of, of an a person with emphysema not only looks like a frog lung, it is a frog lung. It's literally cellularly, molecularly, and in every other way identical with a frog lung. And so for a, fro a frog does fine with the lung that it has, under, you know, in its 
operating paradigm. Uh, and, and not to, and I should mention that frogs don't have a diaphragm. So that's another fundamental difference between us and frogs. But be that as okay. it may, um, the point I'm trying to make is that if if that were an accepted hypothesis that a emphysematous lung is a frog lung, we know how to drive that process in a prograde fashion from the frog to the mammalian lung. I published a paper showing that. Um, and so that could be used in medicine. Um, there are some technical issues because once you get to a certain phase of emphysema, there's so much, the, the stuff between the cells gets so like cement that you probably have to use some stem cell approach to try and um, sort of two-hit hypothesis, something like that. But, but in reality, it, mm. it can be done. It is theoretically possible. So uh, I, I wanted to say to you that, you know, in, in medical terms, we're still thinking in terms of the uh, mutual exclusion, uh, mutual exclusive nature of health and disease. If you look it up, health is, is defined as the absence of these and vice versa. That's a binary way of thinking. It's not right. Uh, what I'm saying to you is that biology, medicine, and if you accept that idea that it is a continuum, you can uh, practice true preventive medicine beyond, you know, eating well and getting enough sleep, yada, yada, yada. You could actually intervene much earlier in the process of loss of homeostatic control using imaging techniques and, uh, and, and ways of intervening, which would rectify um, the slippery slope of the morbidity and mortality, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm, uh can you restate it just in a slightly different way? I think so, but um, we're still we uh, are still dealing with descriptive biology and medicine, in which we're looking. So you know, there's a whole debate about you know whether evolution is gradual or punctuated equilibrium. You're familiar with that right. debate? Yep. Yes. It's actually one of the same thing. It's just a matter of what the level of the scale is that you're looking at it at. Uh, 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 in the way you're looking at it, it's a it's a it's a, a, a continuum, and so it's it's only once you there's enough mass there to see it that it looks like it's punctuated equilibrium. It's the same argument that David Bohm has made in his book uh, Wholeness and the Implicate Order. He says in that book, so Bohm was a student of Einstein's. He's a physicist, and Bohm unequivocally states that um, you know based upon uh, atomic theory, electrons will jump from one energy state to another in uh, you know if, if the uh, if metal is heated for example that's not true there's a continuum there the, we just can't see it but there are intermediate steps the same is true of biology there are intermediate steps which actually explain whether you are other in a homeostatic or dishomeostatic state and in medicine that's critically important because if you know the way medicine is practiced now we wait until the person is symptomatic and then we intervene. By that time, the horse is out of the barn already, and hopefully you can intervene in a way which is not going to be too harmful. But in reality, if you could detect that by imaging technology, and we can, you could, in theory, you could intervene and prevent that uh, loss of homeless control way early on. Uh, and particularly if you have you know, some gen genetic predisposition that you know is going to cause that phenomenon to occur, you just monitor the patient until you see that the phenomenon is occurring and then you can uh, intervene. Does that help? Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people like intermediate forms, you know, let's say cancer, you know, they either want to, they want to get rid of it, they want to not have it. And, you know, I, I remember I watched a video on YouTube about this, you know, they said by the time, for instance, cancer is observable, it has to be, you know, hundred, several hundred thousand cells. Right. So for instance, when someone is in remission, supposedly, you know, from, from chemo, they still have it. It's just not observable, but they're told that they're in remission. So they've, you know, they, that's needed to feel okay about it. People don't like right. to think like, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit of the way towards being dead. I'm a little bit of the way towards having heart disease or, you know what I mean? It'd be, I, I, sure. The feeling I have right. is people like clear cut lines. They really don't like the other. Well, and physiologically, I mean, if, if you think that you've got the sort of Damocles ha hanging over your head, that causes you know physiologic depression, which depresses the immune system, and so the killer T cells that would prevent you know the recurrence of that cancer are going to be suppressed. So it's a you know it's a chick it's a circular problem. Um, I understand that. Mm. My wife has gone through breast cancer. I just got treated for prostate cancer, so I'm you know painfully right. aware of yeah. yeah of the clinical end end of the spectrum. But um, and I understand yeah, but but so that for example that's why basically it takes five years. For a bad player, one single tumor, you know, tumor cell 
to get to the level where it becomes problematic because that's about how long it takes for it to do that if you do the math. So yeah, but um, and and yes, it's very complicated because as you say, I mean, you may not really be home free, but either you know it's so slow growing, or you know, or or, or you can keep it at bay through some you know pharmacologic methodology so that it doesn't it, it never becomes an issue again or it will right so you're saying that people it seems like yeah there are, there are tipping points if, if you're saying things are on continuums it definitely seems like even though that things move according to a continuum like evolution there are tipping points that's what i was asking you before where you hmm. you tend not to go back and you tend to go forward at a perhaps a much faster rate and change into something new dramatically yeah, so, I'm sorry. So I was talking about uh, Jean Gere's Ammonites. So in thinking through, so Gere actually asked me, so well, you know, if you're if we're talking about reverse evolution, what's the what's the um, the term for it? You know, where it it stop? It has to stop at a certain point because otherwise you become another species. The, I think that so there's a class of genes called homeobox genes. They're the ones that confer the you know the okay. sort of the bow plan of the organism. Um, so all the other mechanisms I've talked about are signal transduction mechanisms. So it's a growth factor that binds to us, uh, um, that produ produced by one cell type, binds to another cell type, to the receptor, its receptor on another cell type, and then you get the second messenger effect. So cyclic AMP, phosphatidyl inositol, there's a whole, you know, the whole plethora of these signaling mechanisms that amplify the signal. Um, and so, um, yeah. But but homo uh, but the hawks the homeobox genes are are not like that. They're, they're they genetically establish, you know, uh, front and back, uh, left and right, that sort of thing. The fundamental bow plan of the organism. My I haven't had a chance to really dig into the literature, but I think that that's probably what distinguishes one species from another. If you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I believe so. I wanted to ask you, um, how do you think life began at the very start? So at least one school of thought is that um, so the Earth initially had no atmosphere, and so asteroids pelted the Earth like the you know the Moon has this really acne-looking face, um, and we experienced the same thing. And but these snowball-like asteroids were literally formed by ice pelted the Earth and are thought to have formed the oceans. And there's experimental evidence. Um, and in in those frozen snowballs, there were uh, what are called polycyclic hydrocarbons, lipids. If you immerse lipids in water, they form primitive cells. Or what are, they form what are called micelles, M-I-C-L-E-L-L-E-S. Okay, All right. So they are semi-permeable membrane-bound structures. And um, I think that that was, you know, that, I'm not the first one to say that. I, I like that idea for many reasons, not the least of which is that one of the pri it, the primary um, factor in evolution is uh, memory. You have to remember where where you came from in order to know where you're going, because you know life avoids a vacuum, you know, you know, all those other platitudes. But uh, evolution is extremely competitive, and if you have to th you know figuratively think about what to do next, you're going to become extinct. So there are these ways of incorporating what used to you know something that was used in a previous iteration of the uh, evolution of the organism for some for some existential existentially confrontational condition, and so. Uh, one of uh, an important feature of lipids is that they have memory. Uh, it's called uh, it's called hysteresis. So if you uh, deform uh, a lipid, uh, a micelle, it will lip, uh, so get cut to the chase. The uh, sun would warm up these, these micelles that are floating around in the primitive waters. Uh, they would it would liquefy and deform, and then at night they would reform. That's the origins of molecular evolutionary memory. Um, so, an experimentally, huh. Jack Shostak at the Mass General has shown, and Shostak won the Nobel about three years ago now. So, Jack showed that um, in, a, in a test tube, you can synthesize nucleotides, DNA, RNA, um, from lipids, but you can't synthesize lipids uh, from DNA. It's a one, it's, it, it, so, the lipids had to have been here prior to the nucleus and 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 like that scenario about the uh, warm you know endothermy and ox in oxytocin story the same thing happens here you have lipid memory that uh put us in good stead as organisms for a while and then the nucleotides evolved or came from, from the stellar space or stellar space that's not clear but at any rate the nucleus took over as as you know the permanent memory of the organism but the lipid memory is still there um, and so that's where I think that life 
began. Um, and, and the other, so the other thing, so the, and the so Lynn Margulis was a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate at Boston. So I, I know oh, really? her, cool. I know her work very well for that reason. Symbiosis was sort of what we all cut our teeth on as biology majors at, at BU. At any rate, so endosymbiosis is that the way that life evolved was these lipid protocells would were able to uh, internalize factors in the environment that were uh, life-threatening. So the classic example would be iron. So iron is a very potent oxidizing agent, um, which would have killed us off long ago, but instead it became, you know, the uh, the, the uh, active site, a catalytic site in hemoglobin, for example. And there are many, many of these heavy metals doing that, zinc and other heavy metals doing that. So heavy metals gases like oxygen and uh, nitrogen, for example, being entrained um, by the cell um, and uh, bacteria, mitochondria. Um, That process uh, is the basis for our physiology. So the compartmentalization of those properties becomes physiology. And um, so I think... Why would would that happen? Um, Do you think it happened just once? And why only here and not on other planets? And does it happen again today as as we speak? Is new life starting? Or is this just a one-time thing, you think? Yeah, I I um, don't know enough about um, astronomy. I mean, you know, we talk, we talk about other Earths. Clearly, one of the reasons that the Earth it, it gave off all this biologic um, heterogeneity is because, of, you know, the 47-degree tilt or whatever it is of the Earth, you know, seasons. That had a huge effect on biologic diversity. But um, beyond that, um, you know, Gould used to say you could rewind the tape. I don't think you can. I think, it, you know, if you started from a, so the initial conditions is the way the physicists express it. If the initial conditions were different, you would have a different consequence of the intera- interactions of the physics and the biology. Um, but I've actually gone on record to say that uh, the cell, cell physiology and quantum mechanics are, ho- are homologous. So the aspects of um, uh, of quantum mechanics, such as uncertainty principle, are consistent with uh, um, aspects of the of self. Uh, well, so I've I've said that. So the way that I got into this was I I reverse engineered the whole process from the existing physiology back to the unicellular state and concluded that there must be first principles of physiology. And the ones I identified were negative entropy, is what Schrödinger said in his book uh, What Is Life. 1944. So negative entropic state is essential for life, uh, fueled by chemiosmosis, the ability, the most primitive of bioenergetic mechanisms, um, and controlled by homeostasis. Um, and so in thinking in those terms, I've worked all the way back from that condition. So then the, the obvious question that is in terms of a, uh, of a uh, pre-adaptive mechanism, uh, seri- serial pre-adaptation, the way I have expressed it, Gould called them exaptation. So if you if you accept that logic uh, in terms of the origins of life, where did the where did life originate? What was the pre precondition for life itself? I think it was the singularity that exists existed before the big the Big Bang. And so I've actually considered the possibility, the real possibility that we are always trying to remain proximate to the singularity. We never leave the unicellular state, like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. She's running as fast as she can to stay in place. And that in reality, because we've internalized the physics of the environment and must comply, therefore, with natural the laws of nature, just like the physical um, entities in the environment, that... Uh, consciousness is actually the aggregate of all of our physiology. And in fact, uh, um, that's been expressed by philosophers like um, okay. Schopenhauer and um, yeah, I'm I always blank on his name. He said that uh, the brain is the mind's idea of the body, uh, Spinoza. Spinoza said that. I think he was right, but but did, but he didn't base it on empiric evidence. I'm saying to you, I think there's empiric evidence to support the idea that if in fact I'm right, and that consciousness isn't what we, it's not mind, it's not what we think it is. It's just our understanding of interoception, which is our, our recognition of our own internal working, brought to, you know, brought to the level of what we think of as mind or conscious. But in reality, if in fact, um, so the analogy I've used is that the consciousness of the cosmos, the set of principles, the, co- the cosmology operate, the laws of nature, are like a data operating system. And our physiology is the software that recognizes that data operating system. Hmm. So it's a very different way of understanding our, you know, you you said, you know, at the beginning of our discussion that 
life is so complicated and 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 yeah, it freaks us out. It's the big the big chill, right? The physicists yeah, tell us that we're only here by chance. That scares the bejesus out of me and everyone yep, else. Yep. But the reality is, it's that's anthropic principle. You know, how do we get plunked into this uh, this universe of all the multiverses? That's that's after the fact. We are not in this universe. We are literally of this. We are literally composed of the same stuff. So the the, the lipids I mentioned that that were embedded in those asteroids, they come from right. pulsars. That's known. So all this stuff is, it's just a matter of how the arrangement occurs and, you know, the sequence of events. And so that's why I say to you, as a card-carrying atheist, <laughs> that I'm okay with all this now because I'm just going back to where I started. If, you know, if, if you bury me in dirt, I'm going to go back to where I started. And then I'm going to right. feed the worms that, you know, then blah, blah, blah. You know, I've, I've, uh, I, I actually have a real possibility because, you know, the microbiome is a concept, you know, that when we die naturally in the wild, if you our microbiome actually goes back into the soil, back into the fur, back into plants and animals, and, and it may remain somewhat intact. And, you know, that's, that, that's, it's clearly possible that there's a certain level of immortality at all. So there's actually experimental evidence. Cool. It's called the necrobiome. Okay. These people use this stuff for forensics, but that the microbiome, remains as a residual in you know cemeteries and you can you can uh, detect it you can identify it so if it remains in well, John we're uh, we're out of time John we're yeah, unfortunately we're out of time but I definitely have to have you back because uh, <laughs> like, yeah we're getting into all kinds of amazing <laughs> stuff so yeah no. let me let me uh, let me end it here but I'm gonna I'm gonna be getting you back soon if you're okay with that uh, you know, no, but my pleasure. So I, I'm sorry, I, I, just, I was rambling, but I wanted to That's sort okay. of. I guess you know, my astrophysicist friend who taught me all of contemporary astrophysics for 20 years. You know, he's the one who held me to the standard of well, you know, what is what does the model predict? And it is predictive of many things that are clearly either dogma or we just throw our hands up in the air and we don't understand. So I think that the the idea, although it's probably not 100% correct. I don't even know if it's 50% correct, but I think somehow we have to do something different than what we, because, you know, to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome, that's insanity. (laughs) And we're demonstrating it. So, hey, all right. Thanks, Richard. Well, very good, John. Thank you for coming, and I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.